0: 196th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's podcast on family farming, sustainable agriculture, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. Perhaps the most exciting aspect of the recent buzz around soil health and farming is that it makes one thing crystal clear. We can turn back the clock to a time when the world beneath our feet was more in sync with the natural ecosystems. An increasing number of farmers are utilizing cover cropping, diverse rotations, managed rotational grazing of livestock, and no till production to rebuild the biological life soils need to become as self sufficient as they once were. The result is less erosion, a reduced reliance on chemical fertilizers and pesticides, and a better ability to manage precipitation. That latter benefit is particularly key as a changing climate produces an increasing number of extreme rainfall events that often overwhelm traditional conservation measures. Roy Beyer is one of those farmers proving that the soil can be brought back to life, even after it's been exposed to severe damage. In 2008, torrential rains hammered his family's farm in southeastern Minnesota, washing away soil to such an extent that Bayer was worried he literally would eventually not have enough topsoil left to grow crops on. This launched him on a bit of a campaign to build his soil's biology. Today, Bayer produces certified organic milk, as well as beef, corn, soybeans, and small grains, utilizing cover cropping, managed rotational grazing, diverse rotations, and soil amendments. This multifaceted approach is paying off. Bayer says one of his fields started out with an organic matter level of around 1.7% seven years ago. Today, it's at 4.4%. Such a jump is key to improving soil health, since organic matter is at the heart of developing functional, biologically active soils. Byers' family recently hosted a Land Stewardship Project field day on soil health, and the improvements he's made to his fields and pastures were evident. Just that week, intense rainstorms have moved massive amounts of eroded soil in a neighboring cornfield. But the Byers' land had soaked up the rainfall, leaving the soil intact and storing the moisture in the long term, so crops and forages. make use of it later in the summer. After the field day, Byer explained to me what prompted him to rebuild his soil's biological life and what steps he's taken to do just that. But before we talked, I had a conversation with Justin Morris, who led a pasture walk at the field day and who is a regional soil health specialist for the USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service. Morris laid out for me the five principles of soil health and why livestock in particular are the rock stars of bringing life back to the land. Justin, you h- had really laid out nicely kind of the basic principles of soil health. We're here, here at a field day at the Rory, Rory Byer Farm, and he had ex- showed us some of the things that he had been doing.
1: You kind of laid out those five principles. Kind of, Can you lay those out for us? Yeah, absolutely. So the first principle that we mentioned earlier today was minimizing disturbance. Uh, so that's looking at disturbances that come either from the result of tillage, can also come through the result of the, the misapplication or over-application of a lot of the chemicals that we apply on the land, and also the over-application of manures. So if we, if we over-apply any of those, that can be in itself a disturbance, uh, because the soil biology has to be able to mediate and work with all this stuff, and it's very, it, especially when we're working with a degraded uh, field, a degraded system that doesn't have very good soil health, it's actually in a state of fairly poor health, there's not a lot of workers in there to do the job of metabolizing all of this stuff. So that's where we have to be really careful with the disturbances that we use on the landscape. Then when we move into the second principle, that's really trying to keep that soil covered as much as possible. Just like we do best when, you know, obviously when we're... You know, you've got a a good winter coat on to be able to mediate the temperature effects when you go out into the wintertime. The The soil also needs to have a coat on itself as well, uh, basically an insulative blanket. And so having that um, either in uh, dead plant residue in the form of mulch or a living plant um, that's going to provide that that, uh, benefit of keeping the soil covered, that's going to give us Number one, it's gonna protect that soil from erosion and it's also gonna help moderate soil temperature effects which are so critical for the soil biology to function the way that they need to. Then we move on to the third principle which is really maximizing biodiversity. And so what we're really looking at there is trying to maximize or increase the number of crop types that we're growing. So say for instance, if we are in a, on a corn and soybean farm uh, corn is a warm season grass, uh, soybean uh, is a legume, uh, but it does very well in warmer temperatures, uh, kind of behaves like a warm season. And what we should be looking at is in, in natural ecosystems, you usually have not just a warm season grass or a, uh, a, a broadleaf a broad or legume that does well in warmer temperatures, but you also have cool season grasses. And also broadleafs that do better in cooler temperatures. And so really our farming systems should mimic as much as possible the complexity or the biological diversity to a degree of what the natural systems have. So if I have corn and soybeans in my rotation, maybe I should look at introducing perennial pasture as like a cool season grass that is going to... Uh, be very diverse uh, in species and actually provide a different type of uh, carbon release through the root system than what the corn and the soybeans do. So different plants exude a different signature, different array combination of carbohydrates through their root system. And then what we may run in also in rotation with that that perennial pasture is uh, we may put in a more of a cool season legume like an alfalfa or something like that. Or we may look at another cool season grass It'd be like maybe like a, um, a small grain of some kind. So it's really looking at having a, a both cool and warm season of both grasses and legumes, basically the four functional groups, and trying to mimic that in our cropping landscape as much as possible because we, we need to take how nature, nature functions and try to mimic that as much as possible because that can really help to take out the cost, the high cost, and a lot of uh, what we would call, you know, standard farming practices. And then we'll move into the fourth principle, which is uh, really looking at having a living root in that soil 24-7, 365, because we've learned that a, a living plant exudes or releases anywhere from 10 to 40% of the carbohydrates that it photosynthesizes. Hmm. To me, that was a revelation when I learned that because... It's like, wow, I didn't realize that roots were, were more than just a site of absorption. That's what I've always thought they were, but it's actually a site of two-way exchange. The plant is absorbing mineral nutrients um, from, from the soil from the so- and working in tandem with the soil biology, but the plant is also releasing out to that soil biology carbohydrates. Because the soil biology, the bacteria, the fungi, the nematodes earthworms, they can't make their own food. They can't make their own carbohydrates. Plants do that. So plants are the interface between capturing solar energy and getting that into the soil biology. That It has to all pass through a plant in order for that to take place. I think
0: that's a really great point. It, it, make, it explains why more of the field days I'm going to, they're digging uh, soil pits to show the root structure yes because before it'd be like well how's this cornfield looking or how are the beans looking or or even the small grains but it's really it, yep. it's, that hidden part of it is sounds like it's so
1: key exactly exactly so what's going on below ground is extremely important to what we see going on above ground so when we delve into this fourth principle of having a live root we in the ground 365 Uh, days out of the year, we're really looking at, okay, when our cash crop is harvested, do we have a window of opportunity where we still have some growth in the fall that we could have a cover crop planted in that fall time period? Say, for instance, if I'm coming off a corn silage. Corn silage is usually coming off early September or somewhere in that region. We still have some growing degree days left that we could plant a cover crop in there Um, And there's different ways of getting cover crops into uh, either right after the cash crop comes off or or interseeding or overseeding into the cash crop so that we have a cover, we have green plant material that is photosynthesizing and continuing to feed the soil biology in the fall. And then if it's a cover crop that won't winter kill, it'll overwinter, then it'll start continuing to grow in the spring and continue to feed the soil biology. As we feed the soil biology, we're feeding the mycorrhizal fungi and the other soil biology that is going to help make those glues, that's going to help the soil particles to start adhering together to make stable aggregates because aggregate stability is so critical to getting good water infiltration and water-holding capacity. Now we're going for number five, which is really integrating the livestock using what I would what um, has been called Adaptively Managed High Stock Density Grazing. And so that's really looking at not just putting animals out on the cropland or just kicking them out to the pasture to just continuous graze, but to actually move the animals in a sequence using daily moves in a way that mimics the grazing patterns that the bison implemented. And... Producers who are doing that and who are moving the animals in the system, they are moving the animals in a way that the animals are are packed fairly tight together. So the manure and the urine, the saliva, the milk foam is being deposited on the landscape. They're grazing these pastures usually at a more mature stage. Um, And plants that are more mature are higher in carbon. They're more lignified. And so they'll allow the animals to to eat maybe a third of that plant material and tread down the rest of it. And a about a third of that plant residue that's treaded down to the soil surface will actually get incorporated into the soil. That is a tremendous, tremendous uh, healing effect for the soil when producers start integrating livestock being managed in a grazing situation to that level. Now, people can still continue to, you know, if, if they want to, it, they may look at, okay, uh, you know, moving animals every single day. That would be a huge chore. But every producer that I know of that is that has tried that, generally, you know, never goes back to doing grazing um, in a uh, how should I say um, a more relaxed fashion. <laughs> they will they they will use the adaptively uh, managed high density grazing for three, four months out of the year, go back to maybe a little bit more relaxed rotation throughout the remainder of the year, but they are gonna implement that facet of what nature did with the bison and with other wild herbivores from around the planet to really use the animals as a tool to lay down carbon on the soil surface to be able to feed that soil with trampled plant residues.
0: And you, you had mentioned earlier, I think when we were out, maybe out in the pasture here look, doing some
1: soil infiltration
0: tests, there's really no replacement for the that animal am, impact. Like, you know, there's no. maybe people have tried to use different equipment or, or
1: no, different yeah. regimes, but it really sounds like it. there's exactly. no replacement for that. Exactly. And that's where, you know, people oftentimes chuckle a little bit when I say, you know, When we hear the nursery rhyme, old MacDonald had a farm, it's really not too far from the truth because in old MacDonald's farm, he had animals as a part of that farming system. And not only did he have one animal, but he had several different species. Uh, What a revelation. Mm -hmm. Uh, If we go back to our grandparents and great grandparents' time, virtually all farms had livestock to some degree or another. They had chickens, they had pigs, they had cows. Uh, They might have had some sheep in there, maybe some horses. But uh, every farm and livestock were a central component of the farming system. And really, you know, by talking about this, you know, this uh, livestock integration with the adaptively high-density grazing uh, management system, we're really looking at trying to plug the animals back onto the cropland and also to encourage that style of management on perennial pastures so that we can really start to rebuild the soils because we can, while we can take soil health to a fairly high level without ruminant animals on top of the ground, anybody who, once they they incorporate ruminant animals into the system using that type of uh, adaptive high stock density grazing management They've been able to take their soil health to a much higher level as a result of that. And that's really showing that, you know what, animals were supposed to be part of the system in the first place. Mm -hmm. That's part of the natural ecology of the land in which we live in because our soils, in large part, and most of the central U.S., across the Great Plains and much of the Midwest, were built with herbivores grazing tall grasses. And again, we're going back to that natural pattern of what did nature do? How were these soils, how were the, the the deep, rich prairie soils built and maintained in the first place? Well, it was using herbivores, grazing tall, tall, stature grasses in v- very much in a bunched fashion. And that's how nature did it. You're somebody who gets, gets out, of, uh, I assume, a, a fair bit
0: and sees uh, farmland in the Midwest and, and that type of thing. The field days I'm attending and the workshops and the farmers I'm talking to, are kind of expressing a general, I guess, frustration or or a uh, uh, little bit of sadness. I guess is another word over the fact that it seemed like we made a lot of advances, say, starting in the 70s up into the 80s and the 90s, in controlling soil erosion and controlling that movement, and that there was a lot of advances in no-till and that type of thing, and maybe that's explaining a little bit the interest in soil health these days that there's a little concern that maybe we went a little bit backwards that they're seeing more like I said soil moving off of fields that where it shouldn't be moving maybe it's relatively flat or whatever I mean is that something you're seeing that we're that there is maybe a little bit of we we made these great advances basically since the dust bowl and then in the 70s when no-till came around but now that we're kind of I don't know plateauing but or maybe even kind of going backwards a little bit
1: yeah, um, I've seen data that talks about. Um, in fact, I was just at a field day last week. Uh, a presenter showed uh, for Wisconsin the uh, average amount of soil loss through the decades, and uh, we were doing pretty good. We're we're steadily, you know, being able to keep our soil erosion to a minimum till about the early '90s, and now we're we're losing more. Than, than we have uh, up until the early 90s. Probably part of the, the, the explanation with that, and, and, I, and I don't think there's probably any one single uh, component to it or not, but a lot of folks who tried no-till in the 70s or 80s, uh, a lot of them didn't incorporate cover crops at the time. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we've seen is people who try something usually the first two or three years, especially with no-till, you kind of see yield drop, yield drop, yield drop. And then after about the third year, then if they stick with it, then oftentimes they start to see a little bit of an increase. And if you're gonna do any of these, what I would call soil health promoting practices of no-till and cover crops and grazing, you really need to be using all three of them as much as you possibly can. I think what we're starting to see with the renaissance in 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 soil biology, uh, this kind of this rebirth of learning in in uh, soil health, is that farmers are realizing you know what I need. It's a multifaceted approach. I got to use more than just one thing to improve things. Yes, no-till might be a good starting point, but I need to start integrating. Uh, cover crops into the system, and increasing the diversity of the crops in my rotation. The other thing, too, is there's been probably, a you know, over the years, as far as commodity prices and what farmers have uh, felt like that they need to grow, is there's been a proliferation just within the last two decades of the number of acres that's in corn and soybeans. And both of those crops leave the soil bare, or very much unprotected for a good chunk of time during the spring when we are getting a lot of precipitation and heavy rainfall events. And because of the proliferation of acres in those two crops, you know, I think that's could be a contributing factor to why we've seen in the last two decades kind of more soil erosion occurring. I would say that would be my, my, my best outlook on that, on why that's occurring. But the, the wonderful thing about this the message with Soil Health is that no matter what state your farm is in, I don't care if it's the most badly eroded farm in the United States, there is a way to get it back. And it doesn't require a lot of expensive inputs to be able to make that happen. It, re- it requires following those principles like what we talked about, that if you stay true to the principles, you can design a system that will work in, almost, in virtually any environment. And how you use that system, how you use those principles, may be different than your neighbor ten miles down the road, mm-hmm. because your soils may be different, your topography may be different, the type of crops that you're using may be a little bit different. But if you understand the principles, then and and then you can design your own system that's going to help to improve it.
0: Um, Roy, uh, we um, had a great field day here. We um, talked a little bit about some of the things that uh, you've been doing to improve soil health but you had talked at the beginning of the field day you had really started it off by talking about what got you I guess what opened your eyes or got you you said almost kind of of on a a campaign to improve your soil health and and that was some things you were seeing that you weren't really happy with with some of the things going on uh, in
2: some of the fields maybe you could talk a little bit about that. The um, things that we were looking at uh, from the start was in 2008, a uh, flood ran through this area, and it was a devastating flood. Some, some people call it a 500-year flood. Some people call it a 1,000-year flood. But anyway, we got 17 inches of rain dumped on us in under 24 hours. So there was massive washing of the soil and, and uh, problems with that. And so at that point, we began to wonder, well, we've got to keep some cover on this ground to keep it there because if we have an event like this again we won't have any topsoil left to put crops in so then we this even this like past spring here we had six inches uh, in a day's time and the washing was devastating but lucky luckily we had implemented this um over the last five six years and we began to see that the soil uh, was starting to hold better and uh Biological life was coming back, um, both um, plants, animals, uh, and in the soil, and so um, that's really what got us got us going on this whole thing. What we what we've been doing on our farm is um, uh, we've been adding cover crops, and we've been uh, foliar feeding our plants for about the last five or six years, and we foliar feed at least twice a year, and we add uh, the mycorrhizal fungi, and we add some of the other. Uh, like the liquid fish and some of the things that can really uh benefit benefit the soil health and so we consider it feeding the livestock below the soil and um, in return it's uh, beginning to show up in the plants uh, out in the field and also in the cows when they come in they come in out of the pastures they're healthier they have less mastitis the dairy cows do they uh, perform better and um, we just we really, actually, I don't think we even have a vet bill anymore, believe it or not. And Prior to that, when we were conventional, we'd have vet bills as high as $30,000 a year, You know, just trying to figure out what's wrong with our cows. and amazing how uh, nature just kind of fixes everything.
0: Yeah, so talk a little, you, you said it's not just the cows, but you're seeing it uh, on the, the land itself, in the fields. What, what kind of things are you really noticing?
2: Well, the land uh, especially. When we started uh, with the, the one field day, or with the one field that was out here at the uh, event that we were focusing on, uh, we started with an organic matter of around 1.7%, and we've increased that organic uh, matter percentage up to 4.4%, which is pretty astronomical to move that amount in that amount of years. Yeah, like seven years, you said? Right, yeah. So, I mean, that that's, you know, and I think it's really to do with most, more so the microbiology in, uh, in combination with the cover crops that's getting us to that point.
0: And that's, I mean, that's significant because uh, uh, basic soil science for years said you can't, you cannot really, in a person's typical lifetime, improve soil organic matter. But you're proving, you're really proving, farms like you are proving you can.
2: Well, one point that was made during the field day here was that um, uh, most of the research, and if, and if I'm not mistaken, is done at the land-grant universities, and, and a lot of it is funded by large corporations, but at the same time, you start to begin to look at where it's done you know and if it's done at these uni- universities where the soil life has ne- not necessarily always been alive mm-hmm. makes a person wonder if it is in fact the soil rebuilding from the soil life and not not anything else really mm-hmm. yeah you know yeah, that's a good point yeah uh, has it become even more uh,
0: of a priority to try to build soil health in that um, I don't know how long you've been farming but it, it does seem like the we're seeing a situation where the climate has... We're bringing, getting these more intense storms, and it is maybe some methods that would have worked fine in years past and kept that soil in place aren't working anymore. Or are you, do you feel like you, you, you kind of have to step up your game a little bit, I guess?
2: I do feel like that. I feel like um, we really have to uh, decide... That um, perhaps the cost of, of putting in cover crops might hold more value from the perspective of holding the ground where it is, because as soon as that ground washes away, you know, due to these uh, climate events uh, that are out of control, um, you can't get that ground back, and it, to build that topsoil is not a is not a very <laughs> uh, slow process. That is a, <laughs> a that is a hundred year, two hundred year kind of thing. That's exactly. not just yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, what's been kind of some of the
0: challenges you've had? And I know cover crops can be, the timing is key for getting the cover crops in, but maybe take me a little bit through, when you say cover crops, what kind of a mix are you putting in and when you plant them, that kind of thing?
2: Lots of times what we try to do is we try to put a cover crop after small grain. so um, And the small grain works in, in our program because we use the small grain in lieu of using uh, another product such as corn. So we'll sell corn and make the profit from selling the corn as a grain and then turn around and use the cover crop, or excuse me, use the small grain to feed our cattle with, thus diversifying the amino acid profile in the ration and also um, reducing um, our need to to have so much monoculture.
0: So that must open a big window because that's a big issue is people harvesting corn, say, in October... They just don't have the time to get in the cover crop. So you're taking off what? What is it? Or what's the small grains you're doing?
2: Um, Um, It's usually oats or barley.
0: So you're taking off oats and barley. I don't know what time of year, but that must give you a big window.
2: Yep. Usually about the um, end of July, beginning of August. So right about this time we're getting ready to start swathing oats and barley. And um, after we take that off, then we'll either put in, depending upon what the field history is, we'll put in either a mix of um, like a tillage radish if it's going into corn or something, we'll put in uh, tillage radish along with, like, uh, hairy vetch. Or if we're um, going to use it as a forage cover crop, we'll put in winter rye. Because we've found that it, winter rye does very well when we use it with our beef. Well, you So you've really, because that, that's a big barrier for a lot of farmers, is
0: they see the soil erosion, soil, soil conservation benefits of the cover crop, but they have a hard time justifying it because maybe they don't have livestock or they're not able to integrate it into their
2: livestock. But you've got you've got that end of it. I mean, you're able to add value to that through using it as a forage. Absolutely. And, and I would say uh, to the people that only run corn and beans and things like that, I would say there is room to diversify and, you know, throw up a building and put some cattle out there. You'll be surprised what happens. Or maybe
0: borrow your neighbor's cattle. There you go.
2: <laughs> yeah, rent cattle. I mean, yeah. I've heard that's happened before, too, so...
0: Yeah. But I know you've been going to some field days and, and you're, you're really uh, doing your research on this, but is there some things that you're looking at there's like, okay, here's the next step or the next barrier I'd like
2: to get over to really kind of push this a little bit further? some things you've been thinking about? I think the, the easiest and the quickest way to, to start moving um, in the right direction is to put in the cover crops, add some carbon to the ground, and get your soils in line and balanced first. And that'll take care of some of the biggest weed issues, especially from the perspective of an organic farm. And that's what our biggest challenge is right now, is trying to get those weeds under control. Once we've got that locked in, then we should be in a lot better situation. I think that is the first piece of the puzzle that needs to be addressed.
1: Yeah,
0: I think one of the things Justin Morris, who is here from the NRCS, was talking about this idea of Eventually, getting that soil to be self, kind of self-perpetuating or self-reliant
2: kind of thing—is that kind of your goal? Absolutely. I mean, if we can uh, go out there and plant a crop and turn around and not need to add any additional fertilizer, you know, and that's an extreme condition. But you know, even even half the amount of fertilizer, on, even on the conventional side, you know, we got to start putting dollars in the back of the pockets of the of the farmers so they can survive and pass this information on from the, for the next generation.
0: on the Land Stewardship Project's work helping farmers build healthy, resilient soils, see www.landstewardshipproject.org. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore@landstewardshipproject.org, at landstewardshipproject.org, or you can call 612-722-6377. Thanks to Laura Borgendale, Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music, and a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members, who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening.